turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 36. Lord willing, we'll be back in Galatians next uh, time we have our evening service. But not today. Psalm 36. <clears throat> Excuse me. The word of the Lord. Listen carefully as I read. For the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. The loving kindness, thy loving kindness, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Thy faithfulness reaches to the skies. Thy righteousness is like the mountains of God. Thy judgments are like a great deep. O Lord, thou preservest man and beast. How precious is thy loving kindness, O God! And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of thy wings. They drink their full, their fill of the abundance of thy house, and thou dost give them to drink of the river of thy delights. For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light we see light. O continue thy loving kindness to those who know thee, and thy righteousness to the upright in heart. Let not the foot of pride come upon me, and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There there the evildoers of iniquity have fallen. They have been thrust down and cannot rise. Amen. Pray with me, please. O Lord, we thank you again for the privilege of having you speak to us. We thank you that, Lord, you have not left us to guess about your will for us. You have not left us to guess about what you are like or what what we are like. We thank you that you have given us all that we need for life and godliness in the pages of Holy Scripture. We pray, Lord, now that as we uh, look more closely at this text, at this Psalm of David, we ask that you would profit our meditations and my preaching. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's see. Tegan's back there. Is Bebo here? Bebo's back there. Okay. Okay. May not be awake. <clears throat> well, Tegan, let me ask you something. <clears throat> Have you ever turned a light on in a room where 
the room is already lit before. So maybe the overhead lights are on in the room. And maybe you walked over, or somebody else did, and walked over to a lamp that was also in the room and turned the light on. Have you ever done that before? When you're turning a light on in a room that's already lit? It's not very impressive when you turn that light on in a room that's already lit. Um, uh, because it doesn't have much of an effect on what you see around you. Uh, it just might add a little bit more uh, brightness to the room, but not much. But what happens, what would happen, Tegan, when you turn a light on in a room where it's black in the room, it's completely dark, and you turn a light on? Makes a big difference, doesn't it? when you turn a light on in a room where there is no light. And then what uh, what happens if you yourself have been in that pitch black room for like a long time? You've probably had this happen, where you've been in a room for a long time, it's dark, and then somebody flicks the light on. It's so bright, right? You go, oh, oh. It's so bright. It has a huge effect when you turn that light on when you've been used to darkness and blackness. The reason I bring this up is because the contrast between light and darkness is a lot, is kind of like what's going on in this psalm. In this psalm, we see the light of God's attributes, the, the beauty, the beauty of who God is and his attributes contrasted with the darkness, the spiritual darkness of ungodly men and women, and children. And so this psalm is all about that contrast between God and his attributes and uh, sinful man and his attributes unless God is gracious to him. So we're going to deal with it, uh, the psalm, that way. There are three points. Uh, The first two are longer. The third is uh, quite short. But the three points uh, derived from this that we're going to see are, first of all, the total depravity of the ungodly. Then we're going to look, that's verses 1 through 4. Then we're going to look at the unfathomable attributes or perfections of God. And then finally we're going to briefly look at the perpetual need of the godly. But first, the total depravity of the ungodly. Let me reread verses 1 through 4. Transgression speaks to the ungodly within his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. The words of his mouth are wickedness and deceit. He has ceased to be wise and to do good. He plans wickedness upon his bed. He sets himself on a path that is not good. He does not despise evil. David here is describing the typical uh, ungodly person, the unconverted person. He's painting a portrait of uh, of the spiritually dead sinner um, as opposed to the spiritually alive sinner, which will, uh, which he addresses, uh, later in the psalm. But here at the front end of the psalm, he's concentrating on those who are spiritually dead, David is. Now, David 
probably was not thinking of himself, and almost certainly was not thinking of himself, when he was writing out this description of the ungodly man here in verses 1 through 4. Um, he would have undoubtedly, at this stage, when he was writing this, categorized himself as one of those uh, whom he designates later on in verse 10 as uh, one who is upright in heart. He would have said, I'm one of those people. Not perfectly upright, but truly upright, which of course all believers increasingly are if they have the Holy Spirit within them, uh, which is what, uh, of course, is how a person is converted to begin with by the Holy Spirit's regenerative work. And so he was not thinking about himself uh, when he wrote these words. However, we know from Paul's use of part of this very passage in Romans chapter 3 that this description in verses 1 through 4 serves as a description of all who are apart from Christ, whether they are the elect, who have not come to Christ yet, or the reprobate, who never will come to Christ. So the description of ungodly people here, um, or so even though the even though the description here uh, that David uh, is uh, writing, he doesn't see himself in the category of the ungodly as he's writing the psalm. It did in fact apply to him prior to his receiving a new heart, whenever that was in his life. Uh, Perhaps it was when he was a little boy. Perhaps it was even in utero. We, we don't. We just don't know uh, for certain. But there was a time when this description here in verses one through four fit David, and of course applied to us as well. We who are uh, converted folks here. Uh, a pastor friend of mine who no longer lives in the area, some years back. Um, made this statement uh, one time when I, we were chatting with our pastor's get-together that I sometimes participate in, or I regularly participate in. And he said, to, he, was, he was not of the Reformed faith, and he said to me, you Reformed guys are into that worm theology. That was his, that was exact quote from him. You, you Reformed guys are into that worm theology. Worm theology. And we are. Because the scriptures declare it to be our condition. If you go to Isaiah 41, 14, starting in verse 13, I'll read 13 and 14. In Isaiah 41, and by the way, this isn't the only passage that does this. Job does this too. Job 25, verse 6, does the same thing. says the same thing. But we'll read this one in Isaiah just to make the point. For I am the Lord your God, who upholds your right hand. Notice he's talking to Israel now. He's talking to the church. I'm the Lord your God who upholds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. And then he says, do not fear, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, declares the Lord. And your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Yes. We see ourselves, apart from God's gracious work in our lives, as moral worms. That is okay, and indeed it is, it is necessary that we understand that. Not only okay to use that kind of language uh, at appropriate times, of course, but to emphasize the depravity of the human heart 
prior to a work of grace within it by the God, by, uh, the God of Scripture. So David is describing the ungodly here, and he says that the ungodly's problem is his heart. Implied by what he says there in verse uh, 1. Transgression speaks to the ungodly from whence? Within his heart. Within his heart. Some people uh, are born with a physical heart defect. Uh, Anna Claire Hay was born with a physical heart defect, which was remedied by surgery when she was a little baby. But while uh, not all people are born with physical heart defects, all people are conceived uh, with a spiritual heart defect. Jeremiah, in that well-known passage, says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked who can know it. That is true of the unregenerated man, woman, and child. David goes on to say in verse 1 that uh, one of his uh, problems is, because of his wicked heart, is he does not fear God. He does not fear the God of the Bible. Is there not ample evidence of this in the society around us? Just think of what you see uh, when you turn the television on. Uh, how many people speak uh, uh, blasphemous things uh, with impunity. Uh, people taking God's name in vain all the time. Um, in an interview some years back, Anthony Hopkins, that well-known uh, and excellent actor, um, rather smugly declared in the interview something to the effect that, quote, uh, or essentially, quote, we don't know if there's anything beyond this life, nor does it matter. He's going to find out the hard way that it mattered. But imagine what, what, uh, what foolishness that is to say something like that, and how, how dismissive and arrogant that is uh, to to not fear uh, the God whom he knew and deep down in his heart was out there. And yet he has convinced himself, uh, in his waking hours at least, that he doesn't exist. Um, years, some years back, I met a teenager who told me uh, he was going to be homeschooled. And I was like, oh, really? You're going to be homeschooled? This is right when we were uh, uh, starting to educate the children. And uh, when I asked him, well, why are you going to be homeschooled? Why, why have you chosen homeschool? He said, because his teachers at the public school were trying to push religion down his throat. And his mom, and he and his mom were both atheists. And that's why he was being homeschooled. And he had a clear, in his voice, teenager, had a clear disdain for Christianity, as he was talking to me, um, in spite of the fact that on some level he knew that Christianity was true. Clear disdain. An unwillingness to fear God is the height of foolishness, given the fact that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, as Solomon tells us in Proverbs 1.7 and elsewhere. It is profoundly foolish to not fear God. And yet, the ungodly does not fear God. 
He has been effectively blinded by his own self-love, love of himself, which we uh which is implied by what is uh, written in verse 2. For it flatters him in his own eyes concerning the discovery of his iniquity and the hatred of it. Perhaps that's a reference to God's hatred of it even, um, or that of, uh, uh, of uh, God, the godly. But it flatters him. His own, his own lack of fear of God and his own um, uh, iniquitous desires, flatters the ungodly person. He, he is, um, it's self-induced blindness is what I'm trying to get at. It's self-induced because he is, he has made himself his own God. He has, uh, he, he thinks of himself in a God-like sort of way, um, and this causes him to be dismissive of the true God, and and to actually be fond of that which is morally repugnant, that the true God, whom he knows on some level, uh, despises. This is why this whole push to get people to love themselves more in our society today uh, is so wrong-headed. This... Um, uh, the desire uh, includes the desire to push our young people to have better self-images. You just need to you just need to understand how wonderful you are. Is uh, more or less how the how the uh, the instruction goes for our young people. And the truth is, for the unconverted, and you folks know this, there is nothing truly admirable about the ungodly. There is nothing. They are morally reprehensible because they hate the God of who is the true God and the only God and their God and ours. And it is only when Jesus Christ, by his Spirit, gets a hold of us and begins to transform our lives from within that there is anything truly to admire in a sinner's life because that sinner is now an object of God's grace and has the Spirit within him. But it's only when that happens that there is truly something to admire, and it is God in that person's life. The unregenerate man um, is a uh, self-idolater, as I've already indicated, and sees himself as the measure of all things. And since he has only his sin-darkened heart to go by as a measure of morality, he's totally unable to uh, either know or hate his own iniquity. He can't see it. What's right is wrong, and what's wrong is right in his sight. Again, just think of this whole discussion about homosexual sin. And how that's uh, that's paraded in front of us as if this is absolutely uh, a wonderful thing, and you're just evil if you oppose it. That's Exhibit A for what we're talking about here. The ungodly has, in effect, become a moral cripple, which is evident from the example I just cited and, and the uh, 
and abortion on demand, the enthusiasm for abortion on demand, and uh, doctor-assisted suicide, and so on and so forth. By the way, the young man that I told you about, um, who uh, was uh, going to be homeschooled because of uh, uh, his atheism, uh, he said that the other reason his mom pulled him out of public school was because his teachers taught that homosexuality was wrong. Which, of course, it is. The ungodly also, David notes, has abandoned the way of wisdom and has dedicated himself to the way of evil. We see this in verses 3 and 4. He is wicked in his speech, uh, deceit and blasphemy uh, and uh, and uh, hatred come out of his mouth, and he is wicked also in his actions, as we see in verse 4. In, in his bed at night, rather than reflecting on God and his attributes and his perfections, no, he is devising new forms of wickedness to engage in the next morning. The psalmist tells us, David tells us there. Instead of choosing the good path, the godly, the way of righteousness, he deliberately chooses the path that is not good. This is the spiritual condition of all of us prior to our conversion by the Holy Spirit's regenerative work. We are, mankind is just a worm. But, praise the Lord, we're Sin abounds, grace abounds much more, to quote Paul. God is the God of the Bible, and he is held forth to us by David as the answer, if you will, to this evil, the scourge of the world, which is uh, Adam's uh, descendants. And he is held forth as the source of life and of goodness and of of, uh, transformation in verses 5 and following. So let's look at the unfathomable uh, perfections of God as uh, listed here. It's not an exhaustive list, but it is is uh, uh, an excellent list. First of all, he cites in verse uh, 5, God's boundless covenant love and covenant faithfulness. Thy faith, they, thy loving kindness, and that can be translated uh, both covenant love or covenant faithfulness or covenant loyalty. Uh, and so all those ideas are kind of bound up in the idea of the Hebrew word there, as uh, most of you know by now from my repeating it so many times. Um, but he says God is... Uh, God is a God who is full of loving kindness. And he says his loving kindness extends to the heavens. This is obviously metaphorical language here. It's figurative of uh, the boundless and uh, unsearchable nature of this attribute of his, this covenant love. God's love for those whom he loves, God's faithfulness towards those to whom he is faithful, and his loyalty towards those whom he is faithful knows no limits. Just like you can keep going up in the sky and you just never get to the end of it. It just keeps on going until you break out of the atmosphere and keep on going, keep on going, keep on going. That's kind of the idea. There is 
Uh, you can't ever get to the end of God's love. And that love is for you and for me. We are loved that much by our God. And this, uh, because of that covenant arrangement that he made with Christ and uh, as the second Adam and with us in him, who are united to him by faith. It was the Father's unfathomable covenant love that prompted him uh, in eternity past to enter into uh, the covenant of grace with his Son, uh, and thereby uh, also to enter into that gracious, bring into that gracious covenant that he made with Christ, those for whom Christ died, uh, lived and died and rose again, that is, uh, his elect, us. With the result... God's having done this, having sent Christ, the result of that loving kindness uh, and its expression is that it resulted in uh, that all those who, uh, like ourselves, were totally depraved and ungodly before our conversion, we are now righteous in the sight of God because of that covenant love, because God acted to save a people for himself through by sending Christ to be our mediator. And it was God's faithfulness, his covenant faithfulness, and its unchanging nature that serves as our guarantee that God's gracious covenant with us, uh, with Christ and with us, will never be abrogated, um, nor its promises will ever fail. It's impossible that it should be that way because of the character of the God who made the covenant with us and with Christ. Not only do we see uh, held up here the covenant love and faithfulness of our God, uh, David also goes on to speak of his magnificent righteousness. In verse 6, Thy righteousness is like the mountains of God, or like uh, the mighty mountains. Either one is an acceptable translation. David wants us to think of the mightiest and most important uh, uh, grand mountains that you can uh, think of. I've, most of you know I've been to Nepal. Uh, prior to going to, to Nepal, I'd seen a number of mountain ranges, but I'd never seen anything like the Himalayas. It's just utterly in a class, they're in a class by themselves. Makes the uh, Alps look puny. <clears throat> um, and uh, But that's what we were to think of, is the just the most massive um, uh mountain or a group of mountains that you can think of, and he's comparing God's righteousness with those mountains. He's, he's, his point is that the righteousness of God is, is every bit as vast, every bit as magnificent, every bit as stable, as impregnable, as such mountains indeed infinitely greater than such mountains are. God's Righteousness is like those mountains in those ways. And that righteousness, which is God's righteousness, which is divine righteousness, Paul tells us is a righteousness that can be ours, that we can partake of, if you will, by faith through Christ. And I won't bother to uh, read it right now, but Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 31 eloquently makes that very point. Uh, that uh, the righteousness of God becomes the righteousness of the believer. And of course, it's God the Son in particular uh, that uh, whose righteousness we possess when we are uh, justified um, 
and our conversion. But God's loving kindness is what made his covenant love is what made that imputation of his majestic righteousness to the sinner, to you and me, possible because of the gracious character of God. David then uh, sets forth the unsearchable judgments of God and, and, and extols them. Uh, again, in verse, uh, uh, verse 6, Thy judgments are like a great deep. He's speaking here of his uh, decisions, God's uh, decisions uh, in some matter, whatever the, the matter might be, whether those, whether those decisions are decisions recorded in his word or decisions that are recorded in his providential dealings with us. Uh, either one applies. Judgments are, can be applied to either of those things. And those uh, decisions of God flow from his eternal righteousness. He can, um, so as deep and unfathomable, uh, the judgments of God are as deep and as unfathomable as the deepest trench in the deepest of oceans. I believe that's the Marianas Trench over in the uh, western Pacific. But they are unfathomable. Un, um, un, um, some, not able to be fully understood by us at times. I'm thinking here now of God's decision to allow the coronavirus to wreak havoc on our world. That was God's decision. Uh, some of us think that was God's judgment upon our land and upon other lands as well for our increasing uh, uh, godlessness as a nation and as nations. But the point is it's a judgment of God. It's a decision of God. And yes, it's perhaps somewhat mysterious to us, uh, why, uh, fully why, uh, it, it has come upon this world, but make no mistake, uh, it was decided that this should happen by the Almighty, and all of you I know know that. Uh, and by the way, the judgments of which David is speaking here also include those decisions that he will render from his throne on the final day, the day of judgment, when Christ returns in glory. Those decisions are... Um, are uh, deep and wise and uh, holy because they flow from a holy Savior who makes them. Now there's a temptation, I think. Uh, I know there is on part of uh, God's people sometimes to question God's judgment, uh, judgment when, when he allows someone we know uh, and love, perhaps, to die without having come to know Christ. That's a judgment from God, of God, that he made. Um, and it's easy, it's difficult to not question such a judgment. It's difficult to not question uh, why God would allow, uh, would uh, uh, terminate the life of a young person before he has had a chance or she has had a chance to live out her life in a car wreck or um, in some other situation. It's easy to question, but think for a moment. How could an all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful, infinitely good and holy God ever make an error in judgment? It's just not possible. 
we don't have to understand it, but we know we need to assert and know and claim and believe that it's not possible. There'll come a time in your life, more than likely, when you'll have to do just that. Because you'll be confronted with something that just horrifies you, that you don't understand or even agree with, that God did. Uh, And you'll have to just, by faith, say, God, you're good. And your judgments, though I don't understand them, are good. May God give us all the grace at that time to do just that. David also talks about God's protective care of his people in verses 6 through 9. The latter latter part of verse 6, O Lord, thou preservest man and beast. How precious is thy loving kindness, O God. And the children of men, he's referring here to uh, believing uh, believers here, and the children of men take refuge in the shadow of thy wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of thy house, and thou dost give them to drink of the river of thy delights. For with thee is the fountain of life. In thy light we see light. Not only is God's loving kindness for us too great to fully comprehend, it is also too good, if I can put it this way, to personify God's uh, loving kindness. It is also too good to ever neglect us. Because he loves us, he will preserve his people. Again, verse 7, How precious is thy loving kindness, O God, and the children of men take refuge in the shadow of thy wings. I recently mentioned, mentioned this, I'm, I think I can't remember if it was a Sunday school or in the pulpit before, but uh, this um, reference to the shadow of God's wings is an allusion to the wings of the cherubim in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Uh, remember the giant uh, uh, wings of the uh, ch- cherry beam and the wings uh, that they had pointing toward each other uh, that over uh, uh, overshadowed the ark itself where God dwelt. And that's what's being pictured here. What uh, uh, David is reminding, he's saying to uh, the reader, he's saying, this is how... This is God's, this is the way God protects you. He himself in his chambers, uh, overshadows you and protects you. In effect, at least spiritually, he brings us into the Holy of Holies. And because of his love for us, protects us from our spiritual enemies for sure and often from our physical enemies as well. And then he goes on and gives a further illustration uh, of, um, of uh, where is it? Never mind, I'm, I'm not going not to point to that. At any rate, we read there in verses 8 and 9, he makes the point that God's love for you and for me, because he loves us so much that he will sustain our lives as long as he intends for us to live upon the earth, Uh, He will not only sustain our lives, but he will abundantly provide for us in uh, his ways that he chooses. And this is a general rule. 
This is a general rule that holds true for the majority uh, of God's people the majority of the time. There are exceptions, of course. Uh, those uh, persecuted saints that are suffering in various parts of the world. Paul would be an example of somebody like this where God didn't always protect him from those stones that were thrown at him or those beatings that he received uh, or um, that water he ingested when he was nearly drowning uh, in the Mediterranean. God didn't always fully protect him, although he kept him as long as he intended for him to serve him in this world, and he will do the same for you and me. And thirdly, and lastly, and very briefly, this passage also speaks of the perpetual need of the godly for God and these attributes to be manifested in his dealings with them. uh, We who are uh, amongst the godly, who are amongst his people, uh, seen as righteous in his sight and increasingly living uh, righteous lives in our own experience, uh, we need for God to continually impart to us uh, expressions of his loving kindness. Uh, Verse 10, O continue thy loving kindness to those who know thee. Excuse me. So those who know thee, believers, those who are united to Christ, trusting in him, we need continual outpourings of God's loving kindness. David is aware of his constant need of this. And he knows that that's true not only of himself, but it's also true of every other believer in his his day. And, of course, it still applies in our day. Um, It was God's loving kindness toward him uh, that was shielding him from God's justice. And it is God's loving kindness towards us that shields us from his justice. Each of us has sinned this week. We deserved a lightning bolt from heaven when we sinned against the Lord, and we did it multiple times. Why do we not go to hell when we do those things that are hell-deserving? Because of the loving kindness of God, the ongoing and continual flowing of loving kindness from our God of covenant love uh, toward us that shields us perpetually from the wrath of God because of what Jesus uh, did for us. God would continue imparting. He also prays that God would continue to impart his righteousness, not only his loving kindness, but his righteousness. And uh, verse 10 again, the second part, and thy righteousness to the upright in heart. There never comes a point in time, folks, when we cease to need Christ's imputed righteousness. Because the moment, we, if, if we were to hypothetically lose that, immediately the wrath of God would be upon us. And we would become objects of wrath as we once were prior to our conversion. And there never comes a time when we cease to need his sanctifying influence uh, working in us, making us more experientially righteous. Because if that were the case, if if God were to, with ever, to withdraw his spirit from us uh, and that inf- the influence of the spirit uh, uh, working in us and making us more like Christ, we would cease to be Christ's. Because the true believer is increasingly holy, is going to be increasingly holy. 
You can't have imputed righteousness without growing experiential righteousness. They just, it doesn't work that way. And David knew that, and we also here, I trust, know that. And finally, not only uh, did David and all of God's people need continued impartation of God's loving kindness and righteousness, we also need God to protect us from the ungodly, which we read of in verses 11 and 12 here. Let not the foot of pride come upon me, and let not the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the doers of iniquity have fallen. They have been thrust down and cannot rise. We need to be protected from those who would want to harm us because of our convictions about what marriage is and is not and what is morally acceptable and what is morally unacceptable. But we not only need to be uh, protected, uh, need God's protection from um, earthly or human enemies, we also need protection from other enemies. The, the enemy, the spiritual enemy of the Satan and his uh, diabolic forces that uh, are around us. We don't know where. We can't see them. Uh, but we probably encounter, encounter them quite regularly. We need to pr- be protected from them that they might not uh, destroy our souls. And of course, we need to be protected from that other spiritual enemy that lies within our own breast, the old man who hasn't gone away. He's defeated. Uh, his his uh, effects, uh, his influence is lessening over time, but he still has fight in him. And we need to be protected from him as well. And thank, thankfully, the God of grace does just that through his impartation of loving kindness ongoingly and righteousness ongoingly. Praise the Lord for it. Pray pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this passage, this psalm that reminds us of who we once were uh, prior to our conversion, uh, reminds us of our need now that we are converted, uh, and reminds us of you, uh, the great helper of your people and the great uh, giver to your people. Uh, we thank you for reminding us of uh, what a wonderful God you are and uh, how much we have to be thankful for. We ask that you would uh, impress these truths afresh upon our hearts and uh, this day and in coming days ahead, and that we would be more um, drawn toward you uh, as a result, that we would seek your face more diligently and desire your presence more diligently because of what we have heard uh, today. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.